Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the You Should Run podcast. I'm Tony Heil, council member in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania, as always. And uh, today I have a new guest from a state that I really like, though I've never been, as far as I remember. Um, if you remember 2008, which feels like 100 years ago at this point, uh, you remember that the when Barack Obama uh, ran for president, he had a uh, the convention in Denver, Colorado. And at the time, Colorado was seen as a it was seen as a swing state, maybe. Maybe this would be the year that it moved into another direction. Maybe this would be the year, 2008, that uh, Colorado went for uh, went for a Democrat. And it was, but it was a, it was a change. And this in this past year, 2020, um, it was seen as not really that competitive. It was one of the bluer states. So it's a state that is trending in a different direction uh, than it had been for many years before but also has some very interesting characters and, and from all sorts of political life, including my guest today, um, a state legislator there in Colorado, who I think has some really interesting dis- things to say, some great perspectives on positive things happening in Colorado. His name is Stephen Woodrow, and we're going to be talking about his experience running for office in Colorado, what's happening in his state, and hopefully you will be encouraged to run for office too. So with that, Representative Woodrow, how are you today? Oh, wow. I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for that intro, Tony. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to come on your, your program and, uh, and and talk a bit about running for office and, and what it's like and, and how other people should get involved, because uh, now is, is more important than ever that we have good voices, good people from all walks of life uh, toss their hats into the ring. Um, you know, you, you're right. We do need a lot of different voices getting involved, but Question I always ask first with any guest is, have you always been politically engaged or um, aware, or did something kind of spark in you to really care about politics? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit of an outlier in that respect. I started getting in po- involved in politics. Uh, my earliest memory is at the age of four. Uh, my parents uh, brought me into the booth uh, back in Michigan uh, to punch the card uh, for Walter Mondale. <laughs> Which uh, I not only knew that we were doing because we were Democrats, but I, uh, in our household, um, we grew up with a different picture of President Reagan. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of our neighbors uh, adored the man, and he clearly did well in that election, um, certainly in Michigan and, and I think 49 other states. Um, 48 other states. Household, he did lose one. Right, right. Um, 48 other states, correct. Um, but he, uh, absolutely. But he, um, you know, we grew up really caring about workers and civil rights and, you know, a, a bigger picture. Um, and so, you know, the idea of trickle-down economics and what it was doing to uh, people who are already struggling to get by. Um, and then there were the, the undertones, you know, sometimes overtones when you started talking about things like uh, people on welfare, you know, the welfare queen. Um, and getting that in people's minds. So my parents just uh, didn't dig it. They rejected it pretty much wholesale. Um, you know, my father passed away when I was really young. Uh, my mom went back to teach public school for 27 years. We had the social safety net. Um, and, you know, I got to see what happens when when things don't necessarily go according to plan and what a strong social safety net uh, can do to, to help people, you know, not become dependent, um, but to spring forward. And because of that investment that 
the taxpayer made in me, I, me and my sisters, we were able to go to, you know, I was able to go to the University of Michigan, um, you know, and on to law school, uh, and then, you know, on, on, to, on to office. Um, I would encourage, you know, anyone at any age, though, to get involved. Uh, there's, there's a famous quote, and I'm, I'm going to botch it, but, you know, <laughs> whether, whether you have an interest in politics is sort of irrelevant. Politics has an interest in you. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's really important, especially for, well, almost any group of people, because the politics is affecting your life, and someone else is making that decision, and you can decide whether you're going to make those decisions or someone else is going to do it for you. Yeah, yeah, there's that. Uh, you know, the policies uh, that we make are societal choices. It's how we have, a, as, as a representative democracy, have decided to have these um, important, you know, discussions uh, hashed out and, and, and solidified. And so, you know, if you're not part of that conversation, you know, I'm going to botch another quote, you know, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Mm -hmm. And so, but you are at the table in Colorado, which is not very similar to Michigan. Um, and it's, you know, a little bit further away than that, though both can be cold. Um and so at one point you decided that you were going to run for office. Was this your decision? Did people kind of encourage you? What was what was it that made you take the leap and start getting those petitions signed and raise the money and knock the doors? Yeah, wow. So I a couple couple things there. First we gotta take a step back. Uh Yes, the two states, Colorado and Michigan, are different, especially when it comes to the weather. No comparison there. Uh, you know, Colorado is just such a, a sunny state. But both have certain things in common. They got really hardworking people. They have uh, beautiful access to nature, first-class camping. Um, I love recreation and getting outdoors, and, and both uh, offer just, you know, uh, wonderful opportunities in that respect. And, you know, that's sort of what drove me to, to get into office is I'm, I'm, I was raised as a camper, um, someone who goes out in, into nature and enjoys that, that experience of hiking and just uh, unplugging. It's awesome. Um, and, you know, one of the first rules of the campsite, you know, my sons will tell you uh, right after having fun is you leave the campsite better than you found it. Not just as good, uh, but better. Uh, so that the next group that comes along is going to be able to have the opportunities that we've enjoyed. Um, and that's sort of the driving ethos uh, that I applied to my law career. Uh, I sue banks, financial institutions, telemarketers, and debt collectors <laughs> on behalf of everyday people and complex class actions. Um, and when this opportunity arose to, to run for state office, um, I, I, I just decided not to let it pass up anymore. Yeah, that I think that that's a pretty good background to have on a, on a card, right? When you went to doors or you talked to voters and you say you sue telemarketers, I'm sure people weren't angry about that kind of background, right? No, I mean, it's 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 a different sort of era, uh, I guess, in Denver. You know, I mean, uh, when a class action attorney, um, you know, can, can can be seen on the side of right. Um, but, you know, everyone decides what they can, you know, chooses to do what they, what they ultimately do with their law degree. And I decided to take mine and apply it in a space where I can fight for privacy rights. I can advance um, consumer protections um, and, you know, you know, when you get into the appellate work, I actually craft uh, through interpretation new law. Um, but, you know, there's nothing, you know, that can possibly supplant constitutionally or otherwise the importance of the legislature and the legislative process.
Um, and so you, you know, to have that opportunity come and represent uh, 82,000 constituents and be their voice under the dome, uh, it's, it's, you know, something that I would encourage anyone um, civically minded to go do. And I, I talked with one of your colleagues, uh, legislator Brianna Tatone, last year. I think it was 2020, maybe 2019 at this point. It's hard. To, it all it all comes together. Um, and Colorado politics really interests me because, again, many years ago it was considered a much more conservative state. I don't know if it was so conservative or Republican, but um, there was a presidential candidate, Tom Tancredo, who was very extreme from Colorado. Obviously, we have a very extreme member of Congress from Colorado now, but it's also seen as a trending Democratic state uh, in presidential politics and other things. So what? how has the politics been changing there, whether for your level or others? Um, is it? Do you really see that it's evolving to be more open-minded, or was it really just always like this? Yes, yeah, so that's an excellent question. So I do think that uh, what has changed, and just speaking as someone who's you know moved here in uh, 2011, uh, but used to come out here you know, growing up as a kid, um, the change you know has been the uh, organization of the Democrats on the ground. Mm -hmm. So much work goes into the ground game, much like what happened in Georgia with an excellent field operation. Um, it starts in Denver, but it includes Boulder and other. Uh, you know, uh, liberal parts of the state. Um, it's uh, it, it's it's been a lot of, uh, you know, that grassroots organizing to turn the state from what was definitely purple uh, to to a more solid blue. I mean, we still have very conservative parts of the state. Focus on the families in Colorado. Colorado Springs is, you know, one of the uh, original uh, spaces where you know. Uh, Coke libertarianism mm -hmm. uh, took you know we still have Weld County and, and a vibrant oil and gas industry very conservative voices and one of the things that I really appreciate about our leadership in the in the house um, you know as Dems we control uh, the numbers we out of 65 in the house we have 41 but our leadership uh, is always encouraging us to reach out across the aisle to always do things in a bipartisan fashion when we can uh, they call it the Colorado way, and I agree with it. Um, you know, rhetoric aside, uh, these are people. They represent other people. Those people have concerns, um, and they and they deserve to have a voice. And so we take that very seriously. And I think that uh, because of the investment we make in the process, um, we're able to do things in a way uh, that that it really becomes a model for other states. Keep you know, key example um, in the wake of the you know, horrific shootings and police violence that we saw, uh, you know, in the earlier part of last year, um, you know, Colorado came together to pass first in the nation uh, law enforcement uh, accountability reform. Um, and that was bipartisan. Um, so, you know, it really shows that that there's that there is a way to do this right when you put aside the nonsense. Um, but I got to be honest, it's hard to put aside the nonsense these days. Yeah. Uh, Colorado just lost um, Senator Cory Gardner, who I was no fan of, um, but at the same time, you know, from a rhetorical standpoint, uh, he certainly wasn't the new congresswoman uh, that that we have uh, in CD three. You know, who's who's apparently you know uh, trying to make guns a major issue 
um, not respecting, you know, the metal detectors outside, you know, Congress, um, and engaging in conspiracy theories, just insulted a survivor of a horrific school shooting um, publicly. I mean, when that type of voice takes over, um, you know, it, it sort of doesn't make room, uh, at least, you know, on a grander scale, for that more moderate voice to, to shine through. Yeah, you, Colorado does, an, an example, I mean, like I said, it has elected re many Republicans in the past at all levels of government, but so many of them were pretty moderate members. Um, and even that congresswoman, she defeated someone who was much less fringe in a primary. And in 2018, I know that Colorado had one of the most moderate um, Republican members, depending on how you define moderate. And, you know, he lost, I think he's the one that lost to Jason Crow, who, I got to be honest, is one of my favorite members of Congress. Um, during the riots or sedition on January 6th, he was there protecting one of my local members. Um, it was really an, an emotional experience watching that, knowing that I've met these people and here's a member helping them as on a human level. Um, but it is interesting the path that these parties are taking where, like you said, the Democratic Party has been organizing on the ground level to boost up their vote, and the Republican Party is kind of purging um, through contrition or whatever those moderate members who would have walked worked across the aisle. Yeah, so uh, first let me just say that uh, Representative Jason Crow is a hero. Um, uh -huh. He's got you know, a fantastic, uh, you know, way about him, uh, a great future ahead, and his past, you know, just experience, his background in the military, his law background is just so impressive. Um, and yeah, he's exactly, you know, the type of person we want. Um, going back to what I said earlier, what allowed him to uh, beat Mike Kaufman, uh, who had held on to that seat, and is now the mayor of Aurora, Colorado, uh, he was he was able to unseat Mike Kaufman because of that ground game, because of that organization, because of the Arapaho Dems and Denver Dems and other other uh, parts of the state coming together to fundraise and push and say this is the person, this is the time. Uh, we can't afford to send another uh, voice to Congress who's going to be complicit in the Trump regime and agenda. It's not going to be on our behalf. And it seems like. If you were looking at politics before then, you wouldn't have seen someone that was moderate like that supporting this president, that president, and yet they almost have no choice but to, or they're going to lose to those friends. It seems like they're in a trap, right? Is that, do you get that sense from talking to other members who you know? I, I think everyone has a choice. Yeah. I mean, I think we saw particularly at the end um, with the Lincoln Project and other never-Trumpers coming out and saying, uh, we don't have to sacrifice our principles for power. And it's a choice that they got to make. And some quietly went along. Um, some said no. And there is a political price to pay. Everyone's hearing about what's happening to Liz Cheney up in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. uh, and that she's supposedly paying a political price. But historically, she's the winner. When everyone looks back decades from now, she's the name that people are going to remember as having put principle over party. She was going to win in the long run. Does it mean a, a temporary sacrifice of position? Sure, but if, if you're not willing to do that in this game for the right reason, uh, then you shouldn't get in. 
Okay, this isn't about us getting to hit buttons and sit in meetings and be the person. You got to get into this because you care about uh, what you want to accomplish and doing the right thing, and especially doing the right thing when it's hard. Yeah, and and for me, I'm like just a local member, but I, it is nice, even on a local level, feeling accomplished. Um, on things like just garbage collection or, you know, starting recycling or environmental programs. What do you see as accomplishments that you're proud of? Maybe that others don't even recognize because you they don't see the groundwork that goes into it. But, you know, what do you think you've been able to be proud of, especially during all this turbulence? Yeah, so I've, I've been a representative now for a year uh, because I came in on a, on a vacancy. Um, and then had to stand for re-election. Uh, it's, it's a complicated process that we have out here in Colorado. Um, but, you know, I'm proud of so much of the work that we've done. I mean, in terms of uh, trying to address the, the pandemic, um, you know, we've, we're, we're a part-time legislature, meaning that we're only in session for a quarter of the year. We came in on an emergency session to approve uh, immediate direct relief for folks. Um, we have... Uh, done a great job, I think, with our CARES Act funding to uh, shore up uh, housing. There's a lot more work to do, uh, you know, with increased funds coming in. Um, but, you know, getting resources into the hands of people who need it right now, I'm, I am happy that we're doing that. It's far from perfect. Uh, it hasn't been as clean as anyone would hope. Um, but overall, uh, we're, we're getting the resources out the door. Um, another thing is pre-COVID, we were doing great work in the legislature, and when we come back in February, we're going to pick that right up with some very, you know, important bills. I came in uh, in February of last of last year, and we got to do, you know, we repealed the Colorado death penalty, um, which was a very impactful, uh, serious, uh, you know, conversation and debate, um, and watching the chamber as a body uh, deliberate. Uh, it brought out the very best um, of what uh, representative democracy is you know, supposed to be about. And so, you know, um, there's, there's tons of examples of, of, of you know, quote-unquote smaller bills, of things allowing folks to collectively bargain, um, health care bills, mental health care bills, and public education bills. There's, there's so much, it's so broad and vast, the, the things we get to cover um, and, and, and deliberate that, you know, I'm proud of the whole thing. What I'm not always proud of is, um, you know, the direction some folks try to take us. It, it is difficult. We do have, you know, like I said, those, you know, some of our conservative voices are very conservative. And so, you know, last year I got to be part of a committee that voted down what was referred to as the slate of hate. We were talking about anti-LGBTQ uh, bills, bills that would punish and imprison doctors who treat trans youth, uh, bills to punish trans athletes. Um, you know, and you have these conversations, uh, and it can be very difficult, um, but the work has to get done. It, yeah, it it's frustrating to see that those issues come up, but it's also a matter of pride to be able to be on the side that's opposing them and stopping them. And successful you know you did bring up the COVID relief whether it's the vaccine or 
getting the funding for renters, etc. Um, people don't realize that as simple as the language is that you're helping, it is a complicated process to get it done right and get it done fast enough that it's worth it, right? Like, what, what kind of, what do you have to do to make sure that you're getting that funding into the right places? Uh, we have fantastic leadership uh, in the House and Senate, Dems, mm -hmm. uh, that, that, you know, do a lot of the work on this. But we also have uh, Governor Polis, uh, a Democratic governor who's been at the helm. Um, he's, been, he's a former member of Congress, uh, very you know, brilliant human being, um, and he's been on top of this. Like every state, uh, it hasn't been perfect. Our vaccine rollout uh, hasn't been as... Uh, robust as, you know, I had hoped, or I think as anyone, you know, in any state hopes. Uh, I think there's, with any startup or ramp up, there's confusion and a lack of communication about you know, how we're going to go about getting, uh, you know, these vaccines distributed and how many vaccines are there. Mm -hmm. You know, that we have to put ourselves in the shoes of an administration that is, you know, told one thing and then reality turns out to be something uh, horrifically different. And I do hope that on the federal level, someone starts investigating uh, what happened uh, with this with this COVID uh, response. And you know, we're you know from the get go, were certain states being favored or ignored? What was the deal with ventilators? What was going on with hydroxychloroquine? Um, we need we need answers. Um, you know, all the way up through what happened to the supposed stockpile of vaccines, and so. You know, I do. I feel for anyone in executive function or capacity right now who has to try to administer this. Um, there's, of course, been a lot of frustration, but it is getting better. I do think that um, as every day goes by, we're vaccinating more people more efficiently, uh, more readily, and we're getting through the phases. It's just like everything else; it takes time. Yeah, and I, I'm excited to see any, I, any person getting the vaccine as my. Uh, seven-year-old says, I smash that like button every time I see a picture of anyone. I don't care where they are. Um, it's progress. And, um, but speaking of progress, uh, it is, to me, much more relieving to see that Joe Biden is president as opposed to what we had with Donald Trump, especially in this situation. Uh, since you're on the ground um, helping to administer these policies, what does it mean to have this difference in a federal action? from a Joe Biden versus a Donald Trump, does that make your job easier? You know, does it, are you, a, you know, more at ease knowing that you can feel like you can trust this process a little bit better? Um, well, I, there's, there's two separate parts there mm -hmm. or a couple separate parts. Anyways, I personally speaking, um, I, I'm of course uh, feeling better and relieved uh, now that someone who told 30,000 lies uh, watched as 400,000 Americans died, uh, downplayed a virus, uh, a horrible pandemic, uh, and failed to protect us, um, you know, it, you know that he's gone, um, that's a tremendous relief. That we're not having the daily outrage, um, but we're having steady success. Everyone should, should be breathing a sigh of relief. I think we have a segment, you know, of folks, uh, Bobby Kennedy used to say, one-fifth of the people are against everything all the time. We've got a segment who, you know, all of a sudden, you know, Biden is the worst president in history, and he's got a, we got to file articles of impeachment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, 
know, the, the fringe has grown louder, I think louder and maybe even a little bigger. Um, and, you know, we also have to remember that uh, even the supposedly more moderate folks uh, can be pretty obstructionist. Mitch McConnell still controls uh, a hefty section of the Senate. Um, and so getting things done uh, is going to be difficult. I really applaud President Biden and uh, Vice President Harris for the steady and constant uh, refrain of, uh, oh, we're here to work together. We're going to keep reaching out. We represent all Americans. Um, that's exactly the message that we need from the president, uh, particularly after uh, four years of such uh, division, um, insults, cruelty, um, and, and rejection of uh, things like basic norms and science. Yeah, one of the things that really bothered me about the Trump administration is the perversion of politics, where friends that I know said, well, that's how politics is. If, if a Democrat was um, in office, he would do the same thing. Democrats wouldn't work with Republicans at all. Democrats would be hurtling insults like this. Democrats would be helping New York and not helping Alabama. We already see that's a difference now because Joe Biden called the Alabama governor after a crisis there. Um, you know, do you see that too do, from constituents? Do you feel like um, it's our job as elected Democrats to push back on that, on what it means to be in office? Yeah, so I, I appreciate that question. You know, uh, I don't remember President Obama doing any of those things. Right. I don't remember. I remember him uh, passing executive orders when uh, he faced, you know, a tremendous stalemate in the Senate and couldn't get, you know, th things like hearings on his judicial nominees and his other nominees. I think the filibuster was used more times uh, during his presidency once Mitch McConnell took control of the Senate uh, than at any other, uh, you know, time in history combined up to that point. Um, so when you look at it in context, what we've had is actually steady uh, GOP obstructionism uh, going back, you know, almost as far as I can remember, um, you know, and it's just gotten a little more worse, uh, a little louder, and the base is able to talk to itself more now than ever. Mm -hmm. You used to have to go outside and, and, and go to, you know, the, you know, maybe you know, some public gathering. You know, and, and 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 talk about it there. But now you can sit at home and you can converse and spread conspiracy theories back and forth to one another uh, on the internet. Self reinforce uh, your own message that you're you're pretty desperate to hear. And that's really what I think the issue is: is that we have a certain segment uh, of of the country. They're good people. Um, they're they're nice and they're wonderful and they're productive. And you know, I they have all the rights and, and privileges in the world. I would never deny them any of that, um, but they do uh, sort of view the world through a lens of uh, the left is coming to get me. Mm -hmm. The left is the left. Is, I am under attack. I'm under assault. My rights are under assault. My religion is under attack. There's a war on Christmas. They're coming for our guns. Um, they're trying to politicize this issue or that issue. Uh, it's the left. It's the deep states, fake news, um, immigrants. Muslims, uh, you know, it, it's it's a laundry list of supposed folks that, you know, are, are out to get them, you know, all in cahoots with one another. 
And so, you know, it's a message that that's frankly, I, I think it's exploited by politicians who should know better. There, there are probably some true believers. I think a couple of new members of Congress might actually be true believers. Um, but you know, the folks who engage in this thought process, you know, rejecting climate science, you know, saying after thirty thousand lies that Trump is honest. Um, you know, excusing the fact that 400,000 Americans died, claiming either that the numbers were cooked or that no one person could possibly ever be responsible for this, even though we know if it happened under a Democratic president, they would have, you know, said, how could you have done this? This is, you know, gross murderous incompetence. Um, I think they do it uh, because it's easier. I think it's really hard at this point for some folks to acknowledge that we've spent decades polluting the planet. That's a really hard thing to do. They love mm -hmm. the planet. Yeah. You love it. I love it. We cherish it. And we like to think of ourselves as people who care. So no one wants to be told, well, actually the things you've done and the people you voted for and the cars you drive and the crops you grow and the food you eat, um, actually all those things have contributed to this, you know, global warming. That is, you know, I wish it was simpler science to explain, but for the average person, it's a little bit complex. And so, you know what, instead of taking on that burden, that guilt, that blame, that responsibility and accountability, uh, it's a lot easier to just say this is a hoax and to come up with every argument under the sun. Al Gore can't tell me what to do because he flies on airplanes. He's a hypocrite. And so there's just a constant reinforcement there. And you can really, you know, select almost any issue uh, that they come out for. Um, where they they put you know sort of facts over feelings or feelings over facts right. rather, um, you know you can you can point to really any any sort of issue and, and get down to the root of it where they say, stop blaming me for this. I can't turn on the TV anymore without seeing a Gillette commercial that blames you know toxic masculinity. You know, I'm sorry. I, I'm the bad guy. I, I think that's a, the place that they go to. And they close down rather than open up and say, okay, how can we actually solve these big issues? How do we solve gun violence? I've grown up my whole life thinking that, you know, this weapon, this 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 gun, you know, symbolizes liberty and freedom from, from tyranny. It also represents, as Samuel Colt used to say, equality, right? He used to say, uh, God made man, Samuel Colt made him equal, right? Mm -hmm. So you have the symbol of liberty and equality. Don't tell me that that thing that I respect and I cherish, you know, is responsible for the deaths of children in school. Right. That's horrific. That's horrific. Yeah. That's a horrible thing. And especially given that I've, I've spent so many years saying, no, that that's not the case and that it's individual responsibility. So if I'm to acknowledge that, you know, guns have a, have a role and a contribution to gun violence, you know, my goodness, I am going to have to shoulder some of that responsibility. If I acknowledge that Trump told 30,000 lies, I'm going to have to acknowledge that I I said he was truthful. Yeah. E easier to just keep the lie going. I mean, denial, never underestimate the power of denial. And I think, unfortunately, you know, we even see it, the, it playing out, you know, with what happened at the Capitol, with the insurrection. Uh, immediately, we got sort of the deflection. Mm -hmm. uh, must have been Antifa infiltrators. It couldn't have been incitement because they were planning ahead of time. The government's involved. This is a false flag operation. It's 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 almost a waterfall <laughs> that they go through of rejection.
yeah. you know, of different sort of excuses. Never does it, do they stop, or very seldom, unfortunately, do they stop at the right time and say, whoa, have we just spent the past eight weeks lying about election fraud that didn't exist? Three days ago, did we just get a recording that the President of the United States was pressuring the Secretary of State of the state of Georgia to find him more votes? And he knew the exact number he needed. I mean, did we did we all just engage in this, you know, sort of fantasy, uh, you know, to the point that some really believed it, and some really think that their government's being stolen from them, and they're not going to stand for it, and they're going to react violently if necessary? I mean, did we just contribute to the deaths of seven people? I think it is now, given given the post uh, event suicides, you know. Acknowledging that is is very it's very difficult for folks to do. So instead, they're going to keep rejecting responsibility, deflecting outward. You know, and and at, and at bottom, they're going to come back and say, "Well, what about you know the the riots this summer? What about when the other side does it? What about you know both sides? False equivalence. That's sort of like the last refuge they run to when they can no longer just deny that they did it." Right. You know, and so we have to grapple with this sort of framework. Um, I hope that there's a political science uh, scientist out there or, or a bunch who want to study this uh, because I think it's the intersection of where that, you know, group psychology, you know, hits up against politics. Because what we have, you know, these folks practice a white identity politics, right? And, you know, it, it's a politics where, um, uh, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse is a hero. Um, Barack Obama was the devil, and Joe Biden is a tyrant. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I I was thinking after the election, it's hard for me knowing people who I like and trust that have either said good things about Donald Trump or, and or defended him even to the end, or didn't condemn things like the the riots because it's not. It is a false equivalence. The people who were there were literally calling to murder the Speaker of the House and the Vice President. Like, that's not hyperbole. They were doing that. Um, but I, then I think something along those lines that the President can't be a monster because I'm I voted for him, and if and if I voted for a monster, that makes me a monster. And I think that's that's a hard thing to kind of fix. I don't know that it's something that is. You can just do it in the next election. And a lot of politics is just election to election, right? You're right. You're hitting on you're hitting it on the head exactly. It's that tribalism that, you know, I've done this and if you know, I've supported, you know, someone who's, you know, pretty bad and I must you know, something must be wrong with me or I must not be as good a person. Uh, and there's that judgment, that blame and that shame and rejection of accountability. Um you know that that we were touching upon. Um, it is election to election, but you know the the solution is always the same. Uh, Michelle Obama said best: when they go low, we go high. Um, and we got to keep reaching out. And I fall, you know, into a category of someone who hasn't done a great job on this. Um, oftentimes, you know, I, I sort of, you know, go with the with, with the jab as opposed to the constructive, come-together uh, sort of, you know, reconciliation tone. But at the same time, there has to be accountability. Mm -hmm. 
okay? And what we keep missing is that accountability. Like, I don't know, you know, how politically involved you were at the time, but, you know, after eight years of George W. Bush, um, and that was filled with falsehoods. Right. I mean, that, that led us into a war, a horrific war that, you know, in many ways we're still, you know, engaged in. Um, and, you know, it, 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 and it, you know, was preceded by, you know, a horrible security failure. So after eight years of, of wars and lies and two recessions, um, what we immediately saw in that aftermath was the birth of the Tea Party, right? A group of, of, of you know, predominantly white privileged folks, right wing, coming out saying that the problem, the real problem, was Democrats on the left and too many, too much taxation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it, it's just one of those things of a group of people who are rightfully mad for, you know, completely the wrong reason and at the wrong people. And, you know, if you're able to go to war and do all those things and your base's response is the other people are to blame, well, then you can pretty much do anything. I think Trump figured that out. Um, he said it himself. He could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and, and not get in trouble for it, but he didn't even tell the whole story. He could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue, and his supporters would probably blame Hillary Clinton. Yeah. There's a really good article by former Republican uh, Congressman Eric Cantor that came out just recently in the Washington Post where he said, you know, we have to speak truth to power. And what he meant like that is we need to speak truth to our base. We need to, the voters have the power and it's up to us to not lie to them. And he called out Ted Cruz, not just for this election lie, but for the lie that they were telling in 2013 that they could overturn the Affordable Care Act. Um, it was a really good article. I, I hope that anyone listening looks it up. Um, and I appreciate that a former Republican leader was sharing that. Um, but it sounds like to me, um, Stephen, that we need more responsibility. One of, do you think that now in 2021, 2022, 23, etc., for both local and state and federal, do you think that people have a responsibility to get involved and either run for office or help people to maintain good governance so that, you know, government can be what it can be. Yes, as my favorite pretend president, Andrew Shepard, once said, America isn't easy, folks. You got to want it bad. Mm-hmm. You, you got you to gotta fight for this. And when I say fight, it doesn't mean violence ever. Right. What it means is organizing. It means postcard writing phone calls, door knocking, lit drops, engaging with your neighbors, Zoom calls, hours of it. Because if you don't do it, the people who disagree with you will. And they don't, they, they can sometimes get to a point, uh, you know, that's pretty anti-democratic. So if you want this, you got to get out there and organize and take an interest. And we need people to step up. If you don't think you can do it, I'm telling you right now, you can't. When you picture, what would it be like running? I got to raise money. I got to call people. I got to talk to friends. I got to organize events. It's exactly that. And it's exciting. Mm-hmm. There's there's fun to it. There's there's also a lot of heartache. And there's a lot of tough moments. And it's very hard on your family. And you can't go in without uh, recognizing that and also having uh, an unbelievable wealth of appreciation for what they're going to go through. And how hard it's going to be on them, and how much you're going to need to be there, uh, listening and understanding that, 
uh, even as the candidate, you're going through these things that you know very few people can can relate to. Yeah, I can, um, and and I can relate to going way back to the our the first thing we said here. Um, politics can be hard on your family, but you got an example from your parents about civic engagement. Um, it's really important that my kids see what it's like to be civically engaged. They're seven and five. They've gone door knocking with me. They've been at the polls. They voted, and I think that we all have to set an example, not just to kids but to everyone, that this is this is not the ceiling. This is the floor. This is the expectation that we all need to have for our country. Yeah, for sure, um, and that's terrific. I, I also you know involve my my boys who are uh, nine and six, um, you know, in political activism attending attending protests and you know by the way you know for anyone listening 93 percent of the protests uh, this summer were peaceful mm-hmm. um, they, they were perfectly safe places to take my kids down to um, and let them see why people were marching or why people were upset uh, you know not based on a lie about election fraud uh, you know but based on a very real instances of police brutality that have to stop yeah. we have to you know and it ties into you know sort of our cultural violence, um, but we need to we need a break from that. And so, you know, to get the next generation involved is super important. But we've got to have kids who are civically minded, who are engaged, um, and who think about the bigger picture. Who understand that you know, right now you know they come from a place of privilege, um, but also uh, you know that with that comes responsibility uh, to others. Because like I said early on. Um, it's it's you know uh, up to us to leave this place better than we found it. We're stewards. We're we're here for a temporary period of time. We're not here to to reign over uh, anything or anyone. As if uh, you know uh, we're going to be here in perpetuity. The next group that comes along has to have the ability to achieve that lifestyle, that American dream. Which what what I love about the Democrats is I think we've always looked at this pretty much the same way. The American dream is the idea that if you work hard and play by the rules, you ought to be able to do better than your parents did. Mm-hmm. It's an idea of generational change and advancement and improvement. Um, and wanting that isn't elitism. Uh, it's not, um, you know, it's it's literally, I think, something, you know, innate in us that we all want better for our kids. Well, and so it's great to hear that you're doing that. One note about Eric Cantor, I will say, it's great to hear him talking about this stuff now. Um, I won't forget after uh, they got cleaned out in twenty in, in 2008, he went on The Daily Show and said uh, that he doesn't think he would have done anything differently. Yeah, I think that, I, I, I do recommend the article because I think that he, he admits his own mistakes in this, which I think is something that everyone should do in politics and life, is be willing to admit your mistakes. But one thing that is not a mistake is that I've decided to follow you and learn more about your background. So if people are interested in uh, seeing what's going on in Colorado and want to follow, you know, your work in the legislature and or just your ideas, where should they follow you on social media? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Woodrow for Co. Uh, if you ever want to email me anything, repstephenwoodrow at gmail.com. It is an honor to serve. It's great to work with amazing people who... Are, are focused on, on doing real good for people, racial, social, environmental, economic justice, um, not just as buzzwords, but as actual policy. Uh, we've done it here in Colorado. 
Uh, I would love to be able to export our model of sort of grassroots activism. If you're interested, now's the time to step up. Tony, it's great that you're doing this project. Thanks so much. Thank you, and, and good luck to the Colorado Avalanche. I think they're a cool hockey team. Uh, <laughs> thanks for that. Appreciate it. All right. Have a great time. And I, again, if you're listening, maybe you will take a lesson from Representative Stephen Woodrow and maybe you will run for office too. Thank you so much.